Father, we thank you again for mothers. Thank you so much for the precious women of this fellowship. Some of them are single. Some have never been married. Some do not have children. But they're all precious in your sight. And we just thank you for the precious ladies of living truth because they are really the backbone of this fellowship. So many strong and godly women that are here. We want to honor them today. And Lord, as we look at this story and look how you touch people um, from all different walks of life, we just, we just pray that our ears would be open because we're going to find ourselves in this story, male or female, we will find ourselves here somewhere in one of these characters. And I pray, Lord, that we would just not just be observing the story, but we would enter into it. As Shane prayed, we would say, Lord, touch me today. I believe you're still alive. I believe you still work in miraculous ways. I believe that you're still the God of healing. And the primary area you want to heal us is our souls. And so, Lord, let our ears be open and our hearts be receptive to what you would say to us this morning. We lay this time at your feet and pray that your spirit would speak and give us ears to hear what your spirit says to your church. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen. The master's touch is the message from Mark 5. We'll pick the story up at verse 21. Mark 5, 21. And when Jesus crossed over again in the boat to the other side, now you guys will remember that if you are with us last Sunday, Jesus went to the other side of the lake. That was the eastern side, the, the cultic, pagan side, where the pig was the sacred animal and where the pagans and the Jews kind of mixed together and there was a lot of occult activity. And it would appear that Jesus went over there just for the purpose to touch this demonized man. And he did that very thing. And remember, he sent the uh, demons into the swine and we had that incredible scene where the pigs run over the edge of the cliff into the sea and the people are freaked out and everybody's, you know, the one happy guy is the man who's been healed. Everybody else seems to be unhappy at the loss or Jesus just kind of freaks them out or whatever. And so they tell him, shockingly, to leave. Please go away. And he honors that request, and he gets into the boat, and the man who has been healed in his right mind, clothed now, says, Lord, I want to go with you. Please take me with you. And Jesus says, no, you stay here, and you go tell your family, go tell your friends the great things that the Lord has done for you. Go tell those people how the Lord had mercy on you. And he began to share in the Decapolis, the, that's the 10 cities on that side of the lake, the things that God had done for him, and Jesus would return. But now he goes back to the west side of the lake. The west side of the lake, scholars, the consensus would be that he goes back to a place called Capernaum, and we've talked a lot about that place, and that's kind of on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so he crosses over again. And we have, as we watch Jesus, we know that he's into divine appointments, I believe that he already has this planned out. I believe in his uh, omniscience, he's God. He already knows that these two encounters are going to occur. And that's at least part of the reason why he's gone back to this area. Last time he was there, by the way, Mark 3, we believe also happened in Capernaum. And you guys, if you study through Mark with us, you know he went into the synagogue and they probably planted a man there with a withered hand. And they were watching Jesus closely to see what he would do. 
and whether he would have compassion on the man and heal the man. And of course, Jesus did. But in Mark 3, 5, just to kind of jog your memory, when Jesus knew why they were watching him, he got angry. This is an interesting verse in Mark 3, 5. It says he was angry, and the, the Greek word means he was angry, and he was grieved in his heart. I know that's deep. You guys have your coffee already? Everybody all right? So he was angry. God does get angry. Righteous anger is God's way. And it's okay if you get angry as long as it's righteous. Okay? Most 91 freeway anger is unrighteous. Just so you know. But he was also grieved in his heart at their hardness of heart. What's interesting is that we're about to meet a man named Jairus, Jairus, who's the synagogue leader, most likely in Capernaum. And it may well be that the last encounter that Jairus has had with Jesus, get this, is an encounter where he was part of the unbelieving group and Jesus was angry at their unbelief and hardness of heart. It may well be that Jairus is part of that group. And at the end of that account, just to remind you, it said that the Pharisees and the Herodians, those in league with the Herods, joined forces to figure out how they might destroy Jesus. This man who's going to come with a desperate plea in our story ahead of us about his daughter may be one of the men that Jesus was grieved over and even angry about the hardness of heart. But I will tell you this, it gives hope to us that just because you have a response to the gospel that's not positive, and maybe even your heart's hard, it doesn't mean that God won't give you a second chance. I'm glad he gave me a second chance because the first time I was exposed to Christianity, and I grew up in a Catholic household, but the first time I ever went to an evangelical church, I was freaked out, literally, by the people. In fact, I thought you all were bananas, frankly. It took about a year where I ended up in another church, and then the Lord graciously drew me to himself. And so here's Jesus. He crosses over to the uh, other side of the lake, probably Capernaum. Look at 21. In the boat to the other side, a great, remember there was a group of boats that traveled together. A great multitude gathered about him. He couldn't go anywhere without this great throng of people. And he stayed by the seashore. Luke 8.40, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all deal with this story says, as Jesus returned, the multitude welcomed him. They're excited, for they had all been waiting for him. Luke 8, verse 40. And maybe some of them thought, you know, I don't know if he's coming back. Will he return to this place? I mean, it was his adopted hometown, but you never know. And so people were excited that he had returned. They had never seen anything like this. And one of the synagogue officials, look at verse 22, Mark 5, named Jairus, came up and upon seeing him fell at his feet. Now, we would conjecture here that Jairus has been waiting with bated breath for Jesus, and he's one of the very excited people that Jesus has returned because what's been happening behind the scenes is he has a sick little girl. We find out from another gospel writer that it's his only daughter. And so he's been waiting, and maybe he's one of these, these people that have, has just been saying, Lord, would you please return? Please send Jesus back here because my little girl's sick. And I can't find answers. In, uh, in verse 22, he's a synagogue official. And the language here probably indicates that he is the chief synagogue official. 
You might ask, well, what does that mean, Pastor Michael? The Greek word uh, uh, synagogue official may imply that he is the highest ranking religious official in the city of Capernaum. What this means is he supervised the worship services, selected the person who would lead in prayer, who would do the scripture reading. That may be that mean that he chose Jesus to give a reading. He oversaw the work of the other elders, which included teaching, adjudicating disputes, and other such leadership duties. Maybe a way for us to think about it in a contemporary group like this is that he was a lead pastor or a senior pastor of a church. It's a little different, but that's kind of how it works. He was making the decisions. He's probably the highest ranking individual in the city, maybe even like something like a bishop of the area. I was reading one commentary this week that said Jairus may well have been a Pharisee himself. And if he was a Pharisee, then he was probably among that group of unbelieving uh, leaders who looked upon Jesus with disdain and even watched him in the synagogue earlier heal the man with the withered hand. And maybe that's part of what gave Jairus hope, is that if he could do that, then he could heal my daughter. And so, you know, it's interesting, we're about to uh, see a woman come up to Jesus who's tapped out, and she's an outcast, and a man who's probably one of the most prominent men in the city. He's, he's probably very wealthy, well-to-do, has a lot of religious friends, but religion has not given him the answers to this now crisis dilemma. And a lot of people find that faith is born in adversity. Maybe they were religious before, but they did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And there is a difference. You can find yourself going through the motions as someone who's religious. You can show up. You can, you can wear the right clothes and say the right things and abstain from certain things and say, I'm, I'm a God follower. But we all need to have an encounter with Jesus Christ. And this is... Jairus. He is going to come up to Jesus. He came up 22. Upon seeing him, notice he fell at his feet. There's a huge crowd there. So Jairus has not hesitated to humble himself before Jesus. And the fact that he, he fell down or bowed down in Luke's gospel is proskuneo in Greek, and it's the word used for worship. Now, I don't know that Jairus is worshiping Jesus, but he's humbling himself, and that's a good start. He does not have the answers to the question about his daughter and what to do. And sometimes in desperate situations, that's where faith is born, and that can be a really good thing. When you don't have the answers and you don't have anywhere else to go, turning to Jesus is uh, obviously the option that we all, maybe for many of us, that's how we came to faith. And so here he is, Luke eight forty one. he fell at Jesus' feet, and he began to entreat him to come to his house. He fell down, bowed down before him. Matthew's account, Matthew 9.18 says, my daughter has just died. The other gospel writers say that she's dying. You might ask the question, why the difference in the accounts? It would seem that Matthew truncates his story. He kind of, his story is more brief than the expanded accounts of Mark and Luke. And I think that's how you understand the differences in the gospel writers here. And he bows very much like the man with the legion did. You know, some, some days, uh, you know, when everything else is stripped away, you just say something like this. Just give me Jesus, man. I don't want all the other stuff. In the morning when I rise, remember the song? In the morning when I rise, just give me Jesus. He's what I need. 
Not all the other stuff. Just give me the Lord. I, I want to know Jesus. Do you ever just bow in prayer sometimes and just say, Lord, just, I, I just want to know you better. That's my singular desire. And all of his buddies around, all the people who know this prominent leader. Could you imagine being one of the people, you know, you know this is the religious leader. This is the, this is the pastor. This is, this is the man, the religious man. And what's he doing? He's on the seashore on his face before Jesus. And you may have recognized this man as one who doubted Jesus and questioned Jesus. And maybe even a group that wanted to destroy him. And now what's Jairus doing? You have to be shocked. Isn't that the synagogue leader? Isn't that the man that questioned whether Jesus was even a legit leader, let alone someone that you could fall at his feet and maybe believe that he's Messiah? Yeah, that's him. Huge crowd, religious leaders. Maybe some of the other religious leaders are disdaining the situation like, oh no, not him too. We didn't think he'd get caught up in the hype. But remember, his little girl's sick. She's dying. And the religious man has decided that Jesus is the answer. And so he falls at his face. Have you realized that Jesus is the answer for your life as well? Have you ever had a moment where you just fell on your face? You said, Lord, you're the only one who can give life to me. And so here's this little girl. But it's the dad. It's the father of the little girl. Jairus' wealth and prestige cannot save his daughter. He surely would have taken her place if he could. Maybe, I don't know how long this went on, but maybe he prayed, Lord, let it happen to me. Let me take her place. I'm sure any parent could relate to that, but he was beyond natural help. Now, if you're Jesus and Jairus is part of this group that potentially mocked you, doubted you, and maybe even was part of the group that was planning to destroy you. And he said, please come to my house. My little girl's dying. If you were Jesus, what would you do? Oh, yeah? Oh, now you need me. You know, my humanity starts thinking of responses like that. Oh, now you want to believe. Now you come. Now you're humbled, right? You saw me heal the man with a withered hand and you wouldn't believe before. In fact, you had a hard heart. Now, since you're in a crisis, aren't you glad that God's not that way? God will still make himself available in crisis situations. And oftentimes, can I get a witness? That's usually when our prayer life is ramped up. You know, airplanes is usually where my prayer life <laughs> improves the most. Oh, Lord, keep this bird in the air, Lord. Right? Do you ever stand on the earth and just watch a plane and just go, sheesh, why does anybody get on those things? Because if anything bad happens, it's not good. <laughs> I don't know where your prayer life improves, but I'm sure maybe this is the hardest that Jairus has ever prayed. And Jesus doesn't look at him and say, get up, wipe the sand off your face. Too bad, let your religion take care of it. No, Jesus went with him. What would you do? What would you do if you had a friend that mocked your Christianity and then in a crisis they said to you, I would like to go to church with you today. Would you pray for me? <laughs> yeah, right. I want you to grovel a little bit more. Stay down there for 
That's not Jesus. And so Jesus, look at 24, Mark 5, he went off with him. And a great multitude was following him, a huge crowd, and pressing in on him. The Greek word here means to compress. The crowd, if you've ever been in a crowd that's trying to move and it's just so tight, and if you're claustrophobic, it's even worse, right? I mean, no, people can barely move. And, and you know, now everybody's kind of, I'm sure there was a stunned silence when Jairus walked up. I'm sure everybody was kind of loud and boisterous. And then all of a sudden, the crowd got silent and they're kind of waiting to see what Jesus would do here. What's he going to do? And off they go and everybody's following. Crowds kind of mashing together. And Jesus's heart of compassion is on display. When Jesus overlooked the multitudes, he saw them like Sheep without a shepherd, they were scattered and downcast. And the Bible says he had compassion on them. And he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest. It'll send out what? More workers. Are you willing to be a worker? You know, probably the singular requirement, if you want to go out into the harvest field, is compassion. Compassion should drive everything that you do. Compassion should be the, the reason that you witness. Not comfortableness. We all know it's uncomfortable to try to tell someone about Jesus, but compassion should drive us. Do you agree? Mm, I'm not sure. That was a little weak. See, sometimes I just have to pray, Lord, just stir compassion in me. If I really believe there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun, then stir compassion in me. Change my heart. Make me more like you. I don't want to just read these stories. I want to live these stories. I want to be part of the answer. Jesus said, they will know that you're my disciples because of your love, one for another. You know, this crowd is a great picture of humanity, desperate, in need of life. All, you know, all kinds of different situations in this crowd, and, and they follow. And that's what we do. The Lord is my shepherd. We follow him, we're sheep. Despair is often the prelude to grace, says R. Kent Hughes. And this is an incredible scene. It's a route. It's a walk. It's the walk of faith. Literally, Jairus is walking with Jesus. Or, if you want to put it another way, Jesus is walking with him. You know, we often make it about us. Would you walk with me today, Lord? I think the Lord says, would you walk with me? How about you take the walk with me? How about you follow me? But the Lord is so gracious, and, and here he's moving along now. The crowd's probably, it's probably a slow boat, you know, to try to get anywhere with this many people. And all of a sudden, another character comes into the story, 25. And a woman who had a hemorrhage, this is a flux or a flowing issue of blood. She had the hemorrhage for, would you notice, 12 years. A 12-year-old girl, Luke tells us, and a woman with a hemorrhage for 12 years, both will be touched. What is going on with this number 12? Well, if you're a Jew and you hear 12, what do you think of? 12 tribes. You know, we, as New Covenant Christians, we think of 12 apostles. We think of 12,000 from each of the tribes in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14. The, the number 12 is very significant. And for a Jewish mind, it, immediately you think of the nation. Because the 12 tribes make up what? The nation of Israel. 12 sons of Jacob. And so all of a sudden, 
You got 12, repeated twice. I don't think it's by accident. Here's the underlying message Pastor Michael's take. You, Israel, are bleeding. You have an incurable wound, and the healer has come. And if you want the bleeding to stop in your nation and stop in your life, reach out the hand of faith. Do not let him pass you by. I think this is the message. I think for those who are reading this story, you know, sometimes in sports, when a team is getting crushed, the announcer will say, they got to find a way to stop the bleeding, man. That's right. And that's a metaphor for they're in deep trouble. They're getting slaughtered. Something's got to change. And here's the nation of Israel. The Messiah has come. They're under Roman domination and occupation. They're not a free people. And the Messiah has come to set them free. And here's a woman with this flow of blood, 12 years. Some, uh, this would be called chronic hemorrhaging. Some believe that she may have a tumor on her uterus. But we don't know for sure. But what we do know is that the language seems to indicate that she constantly bleeds and it never stops. I mean, this is a desperate situation. And she, she is a woman, you know, according to Jewish law, you're unclean when this is happening because they, the book of Leviticus says that if a woman is in menstruation, she remains unclean. And so there's, there's a lot of detail in the book of Leviticus about this, but because of her situation, here's the bottom line. She becomes a carrier of uncleanness. Everybody she touches, everywhere she sits, the bed that she lies on automatically becomes unclean in Jewish culture. And so it may well be that because of her unending sickness, her husband has divorced her because he can't be with her because it makes him unclean. So she may have been married and now divorced. And a lot of the people who saw conditions like this said that this was probably a result of some sort of sexual sin. And of course, in that culture, if you had anything wrong with you, they always tried to blame it on something that you did wrong. And that's not the case, by the way. Sometimes we get sick and it's a direct result of something we've done. But oftentimes it's just a fallen world that we live in. If you want more on this, read Leviticus 15, 19 through 30. So she becomes a transmitter of uncleanness to everything she touches, everywhere she goes. Luke, who was a medical doctor and recorded the story in his gospel, says she could not be healed by anyone. She went to doctor after doctor to find no cure. And so here's what I'd like you to do. I want to show you two Old Testament passages, Jeremiah 30, if you go there. So you're going to find the Psalms and the Proverbs. Go to the right, Jeremiah 30. God is addressing the nation through Jeremiah. And God has some hard things to share to the nation. Jeremiah 30. Here the context is the day of the Lord and the trouble of Jacob, which is the nation of Israel. Jeremiah 30. So to the right of the Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Look at chapter 30, verse 6. God says through the prophet, Ask now, Jeremiah 30, verse 6, and see if a male can give birth 
Why do I see every man, Jeremiah 30, verse 6, with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? Why have all faces turned pale? Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Alas, for that day is great. This is the day of the Lord. There is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress or trouble, but he will be saved from it. And it shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bounds and strangers shall no longer make them their slaves. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. May point to the greater David, Jesus. And fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord. And do not be dismayed, O Israel, verse 10. For behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, that's the nation, and shall be quiet and at ease and no one shall make him afraid. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. Only I will not destroy you completely, but I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished, verse 12. For thus says the Lord, your wound is incurable, your injury is serious. There is no one to plead your cause, no healing for your sore, no recovery for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. All those people that you look to, 14, they've forgotten you. They do not seek you, for I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the punishment of a cruel one, because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. Why do you cry out over your injury? Your pain is incurable, because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. God says, I've done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured. All your adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity. And those who plunder you shall be a plunder. And all who prey upon you, I will give for prey. And notice this, 17. For I will restore you to health. I will heal you of your wounds, declares the Lord. Because they have called you an outcast, saying, It is Zion. No one cares for her. But God does. Would you turn to the book of Hosea? Just keep going to your right. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Go to chapter 5. Hosea, as a prophet, is instructed to do something quite strange. He's told to marry a woman by God. God says, marry a woman. She will be unfaithful to you. Marry her anyway. The whole book of Hosea is about this story. And Israel has gone wayward. They keep seeking other gods, other answers. They keep trying to look for cures for their heart problem in all the wrong places. This is the problem of humanity. This is the problem in America right now. This is why we need a great awakening. We keep looking everywhere else for the answers instead of to God. Israel did the same thing. Hosea 5 verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, 513, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob, but God says he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver, 15. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face in their affliction. They will earnestly seek me. Think of these stories. Think of the woman 
with the flow of blood. Think of Jairus in his desperate situation. And here's Hosea 6.1. It says, come, let us return to the Lord. Hosea 6.1. For he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. Back to Mark. Two individuals at opposite ends of society now yoked together in a walk of faith. This woman, Mark 5, 26, with the flow of blood, had endured much at the hands of many physicians, probably many quacks as well. Mark 5, 26. She had spent all that she had. She was not able to be helped at all, was not helped at all, but rather she had grown worse. The Talmud, which is a Jewish literature, gave 11 different options to be cured of a flux or a flow of blood. This is some of the remedies that the Talmud describes to get away from this sickness and the stigma, which is probably only second to having leprosy. Among the remedies that they had, superstitious as they were, was carrying off the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in the summer and in a cotton bag in the winter ostrich ashes of the egg. Another involved carrying around a barley kernel that had been found in the dung of a white female donkey. What is that? Well, (laughs) so all of a sudden, this woman, 11 different cures that the Talmud records, and she probably did all 11. Why are you holding the bag today? Well, the wind's blowing in an easterly direction in the... I'm hoping that this is somehow going to stop. And we've probably, anybody want to admit we've tried some of these remedies? So one of your friends says, yeah, just mix these four things together. It'll be fine. Okay. Go, 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 go. Got worse. So after hearing about Jesus, she'd spent everything. She's broke now. No insurance back back in the day. Apparently, every family member has bailed on her. Maybe a divorced woman. Every woman in Israel pretty much got married, so it's unlikely that she was single, so she's probably divorced. Everybody's bailed on her. She's unclean. And she heard about Jesus. And she came up in the crowd behind him, which was quite risky because she was a carrier, a transmitter of uncleanness, but she took the risk. She's behind him, and she reached out and touched his cloak. She grabbed hold, perhaps, of one of his tassels. Jewish men wore tassels, and the Pharisees were accused of lengthening their tassels to try to look super religious, you know, And the tassels were a reminder to the Jewish male of the law of God. And no doubt that Jesus probably wore the tassels as well. You see them sometimes today in prayer shawls. In uh, countries where persecution is uh, high, the Jews would sew the tassels hidden inside the garment to avoid persecution. But in Jesus' day, they wore them proudly outside. And the tassels were a reminder of the law. I just want to tell you guys something about our men's ministry. Our men's ministry um, gave out bracelets yesterday, and it says Joshua 24:15 on it. So if you showed up, you got a pancake for the soul, as Mike Massaro would put it. <laughs> we ate breakfast together, and we did a Bible study. 
And we gave these out. Joshua 24, 15 says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is kind of what the tassels were for the Jew. It was a reminder. I serve God. I walk in his ways. I think all of us need reminders. So some of us guys that walked in today, we just kind of pointed at it. That's right, brother. As for me and my house, how about your house? Yeah, we'll serve the Lord. For the Jew, that's what the tassel was. It represented the law. It represented their special relationship with God. And she thought, look at 28, if I just touch his garments, I shall get well. The language in one of the gospels indicates that she probably said it over and over and over. And see the phrase, I shall get well. It's the Greek word sozo, and it means I I will be made whole. It's the word often used to be saved. He can save me. If I can just touch him. If I can just reach out, if I can somehow weave my way through this incredible crowd, moving to the house of Jairus with a desperate need, and I'm sure she had to fight, I'm sure she had to find a way, but faith, much like the four men who lowered their friend in the house through the roof, faith found a way. And she says, if I can just touch him, if I can just reach and grab his garment, and she came up behind him, Luke 8, and she touched the fringe of his cloak, Luke 8, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. Look at 29. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. NIV says she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Can you imagine this? Twelve long years. And she reaches out, and all of a sudden, the flow stops. I don't know if words can adequately adequately describe what she must have been feeling at that moment. I'm sure for her, it was like a dream. It's something that she wondered, would it ever happen? Will I ever be healed? Will this, this ever stop? You know, when we're going through stuff, you guys, sometimes that's what we say to ourselves. We, we say, is this ever going to end? Is there ever going to be a reprieve from this season of my life? And I've got good news for you. Things do stop. Things do end. Crisis moments do end. Now, some of you have been fighting sicknesses for a long time, and, and we know the ultimate healing is going to come in heaven. In fact, At a men's Bible study on Thursday, we studied Revelation 21 where it says there will be no more disease, no more sorrow, no more pain. For the former things have passed away. And we asked the question in the Bible study, is that just too good to be true? Is that pie in the sky? Is is that just, oh, we're just trying to make ourselves feel better? And the very next verse says, right, for these words are faithful and true. On the authority of God's word, The Bible says one day disease and death will be behind us. Beautiful. And so immediately Jesus, look at verse 30, she immediately gets a healing and immediately Jesus perceiving in himself that power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now, does he not know who touched him? No, I think this is a way of him causing the woman to identify herself because there's many layers going on here. I think Jesus knows who touched him, but I think he wants her to confess her healing. But I also think that he wants this to happen for Jairus' sake, 
Remember, Jairus has been here the whole time. The crowd's moving. The woman touches his garment, and all of a sudden, Jesus turns, you know, and this has been a slow boat. You're a desperate dad. You're like, come on, come on. This is like an ambulance being stuck in traffic with your loved one waiting for help. Come on, Jesus. Ever been there before? Prayed like that before? Let's go. Right? And then he stops. It's been moving slow enough. And he says, what? Who touched me? Oh, this is going to take a while. Everybody's touching you. I mean, that's what one of the, uh, the disciples said. Lord, how could you say who touched you? Everybody's touching you. Do you see the crowd? But Jesus is doing something completely different. No, this touch was different. Power went out from me. You see the multitude, you see everybody, 31's pressing on you. And you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. He stopped. Luke's account says, I know that power has gone out from me. And the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet in the presence of all the people. Mark puts it this way. The woman, fearing and trembling, 33, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Lord, I've had this for 12 years. I've, been, I've spent everything I had, and I heard about you. And I heard that people that you touch get healed, and so I've been waiting, and you showed up, and I found a way, and I just reached out, and I touched your garment, and Lord, something's happened to me. I've been made well. The bleeding has stopped. Now, I'm sure there's a mix of reaction like, you, you, you did what? You're unclean, woman. And did she touch me? I don't know. Did she touch you? I don't know. But she touched Jesus. And Jesus didn't turn around and say, you know what? Don't touch me again. <laughs> we might say it this way. Get your grimy paws. Right? But that's not Jesus. Jesus said to her, this is the only place that I know of where he calls someone daughter. He said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. One of the uh, gospel writers has it go into peace the Greek word is irene. The Hebrew equivalent is shalom. Be well. Be healed of your affliction. Go in peace. This was a, a way that the Jews would give a valediction. They would say to somebody, maybe that they met along the way of life, they would say to them when they departed, go in peace. Shalom. And that's the idea that Jesus said. You're well. You're whole again. Be at peace now. Incredible. Jesus is so good. Nobody escapes his notice, no matter what you're going through. He knows. He knows if you're hurting on the inside. And he calls her daughter. I believe at this moment she's become a believer. And he says, go in peace. God's peace. No more chaos in your life. You know, the Hebrew word for peace has the idea of the ceasing of chaos. Her life was chaotic. Her life was a mess. And now she's experienced the cleansing peace of Jesus Christ. Have you? Do you know his peace? Have you experienced his power in your life? 
No one is lost in the crowd. One writer says, In a sea of a million hands, Christ will see the one that has raised it in faith. Are you sensing within yourself stirrings of faith? By God's grace, move toward him. It will not go unnoticed by the master. We are not lost in the crowd. And sometimes we look around and we say, with all these people, do you really hear my prayer? He even heard the longings of a woman on the other side of the sea that nobody even wanted to deal with anymore. And this is a picture of salvation. He can stop the internal bleeding metaphorically in your life. 35, while he was still speaking, and, you know, Jairus continues in the background, the, daughter, the dad of the daughter, come on, come on, this is all great and all. I mean, maybe even in this moment, his faith has been elevated. Wow, he, he did it again. Here's a woman testifying, my faith have you ever had this happen? Someone else tells you a God story in their life and your faith was a little low and maybe you're going through some tough times and they say, hey, this is what the Lord did for me. Like, yeah. It's not just about your story. It's about how other people can be encouraged in their faith by what God does in your life. That's why you should be in fellowship with other Christians. And while he was still speaking, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. They came from the house of the synagogue official, 35, and they said, your daughter, she's died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? I'm sorry, Jairus. She didn't make it. Now, if you're Jairus right there, what do you do? You've just seen an incredible healing, but yeah, I mean, it's almost like unperceivable. You can't really see what happened to the lady. And maybe he saw the healing of the man with the withered hand. But this is death. And you have to remember that what Mark has been painting for us is a God, the God-man who can calm the sea. The one who can calm demons, a legion out of a man's life. The one who can touch the flow of blood. But can he really deal with the death issue? All of our greatest fears uncontrollable storms, demonic power, disease that may never go away, and now death, can he, can he conquer all four of those? Can he really do it? Is he really who he said he was? Jairus had to be thinking, you know, maybe he just put his head in his arm. But Jesus overheard what was being spoken, 36, and he said, 36, he said to the synagogue official, don't be afraid any longer. Only believe. We're going to keep walking. You know, the Bible says that we walk by faith and not by sight. Isn't this amazing? This is a walk of faith. Jesus says just keep walking. Just take it one step at a time. Just believe. But Lord, you know, we have all of our yeah buts, right? But, but Lord, I'm not sure if you're aware of the circumstances. She's dead. Thanks for the thought, but this, this has got to be beyond the scope of even someone like you, right? Wrong. Believe. And keep walking. Brother or sister, maybe that's what you need to hear right now. It's a long walk, but keep taking one step of faith at a time. And so here's what happens now. 36, 
He says, believe, 37, he allowed no one to follow him except Peter. Peter's thoughts are behind Mark's gospel. So this is eyewitness testimony. And James and John, they were kind of the inner circle of the apostles. Everything's done with two or three witnesses. That may be part of what's going on. John's the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official. I'm sure it was a nice home. And he, Jesus, beheld a commotion. People loudly weeping and wailing. Imagine the scene. And entering in, he said to them, this is bold. You know, in, in, in Jewish uh, thought and in, in the Jewish culture, they did not embalm, they did not wait to do a funeral. So if someone died, it was almost instantaneous that you started, you started preparing and you started doing a service. They would, they would do it right away. And so you had a minimum of two flute players, but since this guy is high in terms of his uh, position, I'm sure there's a whole group and they had professional mourners and flute players and they would play the dirge and, and it wasn't even, and many times it wasn't even a solemn occasion like this. They would clap their hands and they would sing songs to honor the dead. And so this, this is what Jesus, you know, the door opens and everybody's crying and, and downcast and they're, they're already going through the funeral songs and you're, imagine if it's you, right? And Jesus says, why make this commotion and weep? The child has not died. She's, what? She's asleep. Now, if you're one of the professional mourners or one of the family members or perhaps there's a couple of doctors on the inside Stop weeping. She has not died. She's only asleep. Jesus said of Lazarus, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. What is this? What's the deal with this sleep thing? Well, sleep is a metaphor for death in the Bible because the body looks like it's sleeping. The eyes are typically closed. We sometimes call it resting or resting in peace. The body temporarily sleeps, but the soul does not, because to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. In fact, the Greek word, our Greek word for cemetery is derived from the word used here, koimeo, and a cemetery means a place of sleep. The bodies are at rest, but the soul does not die. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul says in Philippians 1, I want to depart and be with Christ, which is what? Far better. So when you die, your spirit goes back to God who gave it, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I know sometimes this confuses people, but it's simply a way to say the body is at rest. And so here's Jesus. He sees the flute players, the noisy disorder, and he says to the people, get out. <laughs> Look at verse 40. Now, this shows you that this, this group maybe is not really feeling the morning. Look at 40. They began laughing at him. Jesus says, stop the music, stop the crying, the little girl's just simply sleeping. Enough of, enough of this. And they're like, <laughs> how could they laugh at a time like this? They mocked the Lord. Scornful laughter is the idea. The laughter of unbelief. Ever experienced that before? What a joke. There's a caller that called into a Bible answer program some years ago, one of these classic calls, and he was very angry. Why he was angry, we don't know, because he said he didn't believe that there was a God. But he's still very angry at this being that he did not believe in. And he called this program and he said, I believe Jesus is a joke. Why do you believe this stuff? He says, the host says, I believe it's true. 
He says, Jesus is a ninny. And if, if it's true, and if I ever appear before him, I will spit in his face. And the host said, well, it wouldn't be the first time that that happened. And you're like, what? Listen to that call. You want to reach through the phone and choke this guy. And the host, by the power of the Holy Spirit, said, well, it wouldn't be the first time that someone spit in Jesus' face. And the man went on with his rant, but the host was wise because the host said, I used to be an atheist like you. And he knew that anger for anger was not going to help the situation. And the people laughed at him and he put them all out and he took along the child's father and mother, 40, his own companions, they were already named, and he entered the room where the child was. Now the child is dead. We know she's dead. She's probably pale. Her mouth may be open. She's dead. And he reaches out his hand. Would you look at this? And you're not supposed to, what, touch a dead body. It seems like everybody who's got issues that nobody else wants to touch, he touches. Because there's no way that you can make the one who is 100% pure and holy unclean. It don't happen. He transfuses his cleanness into unclean people. Not the reverse, folks. And so he takes her hand, which probably shocked Peter, James, and John. And he said to her, this is Aramaic, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Literally, this could be rendered, little lamb, arise. And I'll show you an interesting verse as we wind down. Luke's gospel, Luke 8, the next gospel to the right. Look at what Luke says happened. Luke 8. We'll pick it up at verse 55. Luke 8, 55. He, he took her by the hand, Luke says, and Luke, by the way, is a medical doctor now, and called saying, child, arise. Luke 8, 55. What's your Bible say? And her spirit returned to her. Where was her spirit? I would imagine with the Lord. Her spirit returned to her. And she rose. Can you imagine being one of the apostles here? One of the parents. Wow. This had to be like a mixture of, I'm kind of freaked out and this is incredible. She rose immediately and you got to love Jesus. Luke 8, 55. And he gave orders for something to be given to her to eat. I love it. Feed that child. <laughs> and her parents were amazed and then this incredible verse. But he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. <laughs> what? I mean, you take her to a restaurant the next day. Wasn't your little girl? <laughs> yeah. Can't tell you. <laughs> Do you know, there's something interesting here that I just want to point out as we close. Do you know when that little girl awoke... The first thing that she saw was the face of Jesus, the face of grace. And it may well be that this is a little kind of foretaste that when we wake up on the other side, the first face that we see is the face 
of grace. You know, death at its core means separation. And the second death is to be separated from God in your essential you. And so I pray that you will be born twice so that you only die once. But if you're only born once, you will die twice. Let me explain. If you're born naturally and born again of the Holy Spirit, you will die once, a physical death. Unless Jesus comes in your lifetime, you're born once, not born again of the Holy Spirit, you're gonna die twice physically, and then you're gonna experience the second death. Jesus came so you don't have to. And he gave strict orders. Everybody's astounded that no one should know about this. He said, give her something to eat. Where do you see yourself in the story? Are you a doubting disciple? A demonized man? A disheartened sick woman? A dutiful religious leader? Someone who really knows you need God's help? Remember, in every healing story in the Gospels, all of these died. The ones that were healed eventually died. But the key is to see here the gospel, the good news. In the calming of the storm, in the deliverance from the domain of darkness, the demonized man, in going from unclean to clean and rising from the dead, this is our story. This is the power of God. He calms the storms. He deals with the devil. He heals our uncleanness, our sin, and he raises us, what? To new life. This is our God, Father Thank you so much for this incredible composite that tells a singular story of the hope of the gospel, the one who has power over nature, power over the devil, power over disease, and power over death. And it's amazing when we think about the fact that you went to the cross to deal with all of those powers, at least the last three, to deal with principalities and powers because you made a public spectacle triumphing over them through the cross to deal, Lord, with disease and to deal with death. And you said, because I live, you will live also. And you took the punishment that we deserve. You died that we might live. You rose for our justification. And in you, we have hope. You were headed to the cross and you did this, not only to minister to people's needs, but to give a deeper picture, a layer for us to look at this story and see that there's hope for all of us, no matter what category we find ourselves in, no matter what storm, what disease, what power, what darkness, how far we have strayed, wherever our unbelief has taken us, you can make us live again. We can rise. You can speak the words, little lamb, arise. Would you keep your head and heart bowed if you want to know him today? I have no idea why you wouldn't. You're here for a reason. It's time to decide. It's something like this, and it's just something simple, and you don't have to have all the answers. All these people were in desperate straits. They didn't have it together. It's something like this. Pray it right now if it's you. Do not wait one more moment. Jesus, pray it out loud if it's you. Save me. I believe Thank you for coming to this earth to save me. Thank you for dying on the cross to take my punishment. Thank you for rising from the dead to defeat my mortal enemy, death. I believe in you. Change me from the inside out. Move me from darkness to light. 
from the power of Satan to God. Change me, Lord. Let me be born again of your Holy Spirit. I turn from my sin, looking for cures in all the wrong places, and I turn to you. Save me, God. Cry out to him, brothers and sisters. Now is the time. Now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. If you're backslidden, get back to walking with him one step at a time. Even if you have huge questions, just say, Lord, let me just take one step of faith at a time. Lord, we just want to say we love you. I pray again over the mothers that are here. Bless them, Lord. Strengthen them. Encourage them in their most holy faith. Bless this precious congregation. Keep us active, telling the story of the good news of a Savior who is Lord of all. We pray that in Jesus' mighty and matchless name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you stand?